Hi, and welcome to the Productized Podcast. If you haven't subscribed already, you can find the Productized Podcast from your favorite podcast player app, and you can subscribe from there. This is our show where we talk with productizers and innovators and cover the stories behind great product experiences and why it matters to innovators and makers like you. Welcome to the 19th second episode of the Productize podcast. Um, this is the podcast where innovators, geeks, creators, and entrepreneurs come to discuss impactful ideas. Our mission is to inspire people to impactful action. And my name is Indre Marquis. I'm your host. So hi, everyone. Today, I'm talking with Chris Milley. Chris is the managing partner at Software Pricing Partners, where he and his team have launched some of the software industry's most transformative monetization strategies. As a former software company founder and leader, Chris focuses on the impact effective licensing, packaging, and pricing strategies can make on the most essential software company metrics. That's revenue, profit, and valuation. Under his leadership, Software Pricing Partners has become an influential voice for growth-oriented software companies in both large and small-scale companies. So welcome, Chris. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Sure. So how is this new year kicking in? Uh, It's pretty busy. I think like most software companies, you're probably at the tail end of the fourth quarter and a bit of a floodgate has released for the pent-up demand sort of post-COVID plus normal growth creates uh, challenges that are good for everybody. So it's been, it's been fun. Yeah. Um, so you did um, one, one thing that, you know, I, when I was going through your LinkedIn, doing a little bit of research, you started at EMY uh, straight out of college, which is very impressive to work one of those big four companies. And one of the projects that, um, you know, came on your LinkedIn profile, it's public, it's there, but we also talked a little bit about it, was your first, um, you know, development that, that those were the days of Netscape browser and you were building a banking application. And that was one of the very first banking applications in the US on the browser. I don't know, was that 1994, 1995, somewhere around those Probably days. right around 97-ish. Yeah, so we didn't have AWS. We didn't have any of that. In fact, we had uh, the team of Netscape developers with you know code printed on the floor of the building, debugging a really complicated problem to try to figure out how to pull off financial transactions in a secure manner on the browser. And it was the first credit card uh, application for a major bank, uh, one of the major banks here in Charlotte, but it was the first one in the U.S. And it was, uh, uh, everything was very new. I, I mean, it was just kind of the crazy uh, uh, pioneer days of trying to figure things out on the fly. But that that was probably one of the highlights of the of my career. So I, I started there in 94. And what was interesting about Ernst & Young is they had never hired a college grad before. You had to have an MBA. The rest, and by, by the way, back then it was the big six. So now it's the big four. But back yeah. then we talked a lot about the big six before the mergers ha- happened. And that, um, that career that I took was not on the accounting side. It was on the system side. And so I literally was in the first training course for Ernst & Young as the first group of college hires that got on board. 
and then uh, rapidly got sucked into SAP, which was kind of big in that time frame. So these are large scale sort of worldwide still implementations. Is. It's, it's yeah. Huge company, right? Well, we were back then it was R2 and R3. So I was actually reading, you know, German instructions and trying to figure out, you know, what all these modules did because there's no documentation. It was so uh, unbelievable. Yeah. But yeah, crazy times. So those were the times exactly the first wave of internet, I guess, web 1.0. And what was your interest in, in pricing strategies? Is this something you developed while working there? Because I'm really curious how you become interested in this field. Uh, so I'm not sure that was, uh, well, so in looking back, I can see the steps, but at the time you can't really see that. So one of the first things that happened is as your career progresses, if you get onto certain projects, then you get involved in engagement economics and that's billing profitability. And you're responsible for the structure of that engagement and to bring in a certain uh, threshold there. And you're very rapidly confronted with well, I have a limit of the titles in the firm, senior uh, mm -hmm. uh, staff consultant, senior consultant, manager, senior manager, and they have published billable rates and you have a certain amount of utilization and you have a certain amount of variables under your play. But at the end of the day, you always hit up against 2,080 hours in a year. And so mm -hmm. very rapidly, you sort of conclude this is going to be a lot of bodies, you know, and a massive organization to get to scale. And I remember thinking like, gosh, this is that would just be really hard to manage. And I've always been a technologist. I have a computer science degree and I was always sort of attracted to the product side. And so it was right around the late nineties that a friend of mine who was in that same training program and I decided that we were going to build our own software product. And back then, you know, agile hadn't come out yet. So you very much built it in the hopes that they would come and, uh, lucky, lucky enough, some, uh, some did come. And, uh, one of the hallmarks of sort of that, time was that you would trade out all your blood, sweat, and tears, just call it uh, three years of my life. And people laugh, but I actually had hair that I could put in my mouth. And I think a lot of my friends thought I was going to maybe go hippie, but the reality was I just literally could not afford a haircut. And back then you could build a business on credit cards. So in the late nineties, I probably amassed a quarter million in credit card debt, just playing the APR swapping game. You just keep Back then, they wouldn't charge you for a transaction fee of the balance. You could swap it to another card for 0% APR. So it was kind of scary as all hell, but you know, it was the way that you could build a, uh, to build it and keep all your equity. And that's, that's what we did. All right. So that was quite a huge amount of debt. Were you able to repay this or you went bankrupt? Yeah. <laughs> well, I've definitely, I have stared bankruptcy uh, down the, the barrel of the gun a few times. Sure. Uh, you kind of end up risking it all, but at the same time, you, um, uh, you are getting an appreciation on how to do things better, faster, uh, cheaper, and more creatively. And so I think you had asked in the call that we had before sort of, you know, would I have done anything differently? You know, if I knew then what I knew now, I would have treated, you know, pricing as more of a, a way in which you design the product and less of a character attribute you put on a product. You know, it's like, hey, we built a product. And back then we built a product, you attach a price and away you get you went. But if but you what was had been more about it was an ERP system for the remodeling industry. So you can think of interior right. and exterior products. And our specialty was highly configurable, complex products like uh, cabinetry, windows and doors, sort of that made to order space. And so we were um, in the cloud in 
seven. So this was, you know, we spent a year on our AWS security. You can do that in about four hours over a weekend right now. <laughs> and we uh, brought uh, a configuration engine online, part open source and part our own technology. And that not many people realize when you configure your kitchen, there are more choices than the grains of sand on earth of what you can do in your kitchen, colors, glazing, raising the height of the cabinets, put it, and it's endless. And um, that's a real hard problem in computer science to solve as a configuration challenge. And we were firing off hundreds of rules for line items in the cloud. And our number one challenge, which now has been solved uh, in a lot of ways with some of the major providers was just performance. I mean, we really, we were designing uh, early forms of chips to process this at the hardware level. I mean, we just couldn't get the performance to pull off what we needed to without some serious engineering and some really hard problems to solve. So that- We're actually designing the the, sh the, the hardware, the ships that were- Yeah, our, our early designs were to say, like, if we could process the rules in the hardware, so sort of on-prem rather than the cloud, we can offload some of that workload. And that we know today is called hybrid. The classic example is in cars. You know, you may not want to process the rules on the road in the cloud because right. you might want them to process right on the brakes in the vehicle because it's faster. So we were struggling with a lot of arch deep architecture issues at that time. And we were making a transition from on-prem to cloud. And we were the first one making that transition in our industry. And that it was just all brand new, Andre. It was just, everything was a net new. It was a very exciting time, but it was, everything was a net new challenge. And I often look at what we do with our software today in AWS. And I just think, gosh, you know, like our guys crank out stuff that, you know, in a fraction of the time that it was taking us. And a lot of the stuff that we were trying to solve has now been solved in the infrastructure and the scaling sort of portion of, of the uh, solution. Absolutely. The infrastructure is out there now. So. How did you get into pricing strategy and how was this, you know, career path that you eventually? Ended? Well, I, I started, so, so we were moving to the cloud. So we knew this was a big, big business right. model change. I think sometimes cloud gets confused with a deployment model change, but it actually is a business model change if you're changing the manner by which revenue is coming in. And we wanted help with that. So we reached out at the time. Uh, a lot of the people that do pricing now weren't even in the business, but back then it was PwC um, and some other ones, but everything was somebody coming in and telling me about how our software was like a car or like a plane or a train or an automobile. And it wasn't resonating and it wasn't making sense. And then I met the team at Software Pricing Partners and I was kind of delighted to learn that they had invented software pricing in 82. They had this rich methodology. They really spoke our language. They understood that you know, people don't inherently know what they're going to pay for software because it's intellectual property. It's not something that can, you can ask somebody, I can't ask you, Andre, what's the most that you're going to pay for, you know, our AI engine, because you just don't know. So you need a lot more sophistication. And the things that we're up against were very complicated. And the team just sort of at software pricing partners kind of chewed down that complexity very easily. And so then when I exited that in 2013, I was on a drive down to Charlotte. And I literally was interviewing for a, my next position. I, I wasn't going to start another company because I, I really don't think I, I had it in me to do another. <laughs> After eating nut rolls for you know three weeks on end, I was like, ah, I've had enough of that. Uh, and I was gonna be uh, taking on a position for a software company here in Charlotte. And I just picked up the phone and talked to one of the partners at Software Pricing Partners. And he said, um, 
looking for a partner and I found out that um, his former partner had left. And I just said, should you and I be having that conversation? And I'm like, you know, entering into an interview in the next hour. And he's like, hell yeah. And then one thing led to another. And that's kind of accidentally how I ended up here. But I, but in looking at this career path, I looked at the other firms and the thing that I really love the most is that software pricing mm -hmm. partners was all about B2B software. That's all it ever did. The, 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 the number of projects that had been done over almost four decades was so rich that I knew I could learn a lot. And I wanted to come to the source of where all of that kind of originated because that perspective that we're going to be talking about today was, you know, it's, it's a missing, I, I very much concluded after my work hiring software pricing partners in 08, that this was just a missing business process, a missing function that we had in the organization. And it connects directly with product management. And in fact, we would argue that tomorrow's companies need a chief monetization officer. It's so horribly complicated on all aspects of marketing, sales, operations, et cetera, that you really need somebody, you need some additional horsepower there to triage those issues. And that leadership and that function sits right at the center of the revenue model. And if you sat in an investor conversation and somebody said, well, how much money did you spend on product? You're like, well, 8 million. How much money did you spend on designing your monetization approach? Most software companies would say zero. And that, if you think about that, what that might be like to tomorrow's investor, right? That would be like a super awkward, really? Like you didn't spend anything on designing your strategy of how you're going to make money and what your valuation ultimately is going to be. And of course that comes with the sometimes sad story that you do see lots of great products whose monetization strategies are so poor, they don't make it. And so it really is a fundamental piece of the design process. And I love that story and hearing that story from the founders here and that, you know, they were telling that story in the eighties and nineties, and it's just got a long history. You may not realize this, but I grew up on the concurrent user model. So you would, you would charge based on the number of people that would access the system at any one time. And we, and that was a very common CAD and engineering uh, sort of play back when that's all there was or CAD and engineering software companies. And that strategy was invented by software pricing partners. Right. And a lot of, yeah. um, uh, if you think about subscription billing, they were doing that prior to black Monday in preparation for the recession and Reagan on an on-prem basis. So you, if you wanted to survive that recession, you stopped billing half a million for your enterprise software up front and you started billing on a subscription basis. And that's a component of SaaS, right? The payment term. So yeah, and it's it, got a lot it, of history it, to it. Absolutely. And is that what you enjoyed most about work? Is it what's the, the intellectual challenge here? Uh, it's the complexity. It, it, the, the complexity is very high, I think, which is why some will refer to it as a black art. But you know, we spoke about this earlier. It's not a black art. I think, you know, I remember I went into uh, Central Park in New York City. Um, I did a little stint at Rare Medium, uh, which was a, com a competitor of IXL at the time. And that was kind of the, uh, the 2000 timeframe. And I uh, mm -hmm. played chess with a gentleman in the park that I thought, you know, well, I can totally stomp this guy. And I mean, he tore my chess game apart so embarrassingly bad that, you know, it just isn't really worth talking about. But I would have said that he was applying a black art, right? But he was pattern matching at obviously a very different level than I was. And he sort of saw the game that I was playing well before I played it. And so he knew how to outmaneuver things. And I think that monetization 
is like that. You know, it's an element of the design of the product, but it also has to play in a competitive set. It also has to play within the nuances of the customer base that you've attracted. And those create lots of complexities that don't lend themselves to easy solutions. You can't just survey a bunch of people and say, well, what would you pay for my software? Because a lot of people are going to not want to pay you very much for the software. I mean, my personal journey was we were selling software for five, 8,000. A mega deal for us was like a $12,000 transaction. And we did those surveys. We did those studies. And everybody came back and said, well, if they paid me 5,000, sure, I'll pay you 5,500. Or if I paid 10,000, sure, I'll pay you 11,000. And if we had gone in that direction, we never would have discovered that ultimately we would be selling software for half a million and more. And so we often talk about that part of the design process of the product is for you to develop a perspective on your pricing and your value. And there's a certain set of um, frameworks and thought processes and things that you need to do because you get what you command in the marketplace. This is not business to business is not a, um, a democratic function, right? Because customers in general will seek to minimize what they spend with you. They don't want you to go out of business, but they really don't care if you make money or not. And if they can squeeze every last nickel out of that, and if you've ever sold your procurement team, trust me, they can squeeze every last nickel out of that, then you know that that's not really their inherent um, makeup. And many people that you ask about what value is all about, you know, if they're not writing the check, <laughs> what's, what's the point? And so if you think about the complexity of, groups in buying positions and who influences who and who has the ability to write the check and all of these variables, you can't really model that because there's too many variables. And so in the BI practice, we spoke about this earlier. I have a, uh, my brother uh, grew a, a BI practice and sold it to Comsys. They talk a lot about this thing called the curse of dimensionality. Yeah. And what it says is that for every new variable that you need to introduce, your need for data to neutralize and model that grows exponentially. And herein lies the trap. You don't get millions of transactions in B2B. Sometimes you only get a few thousand or a few hundred. And so the pattern matching has to come into how you weight what's happening externally to the company, what's happening internally, what's coming off the roadmap and a whole bunch of that. And that is a mosaic that takes a lot of thought process to put together. It's really critical thinking and you really have to make sure that you're being honest and double checking yourself that you're not sort of polarized or picking out a little tidbit and overweighting things. And those, uh, those processes that we've developed sort of activate that critical thinking aspect and engage our clients in doing that so that they develop that perspective. But most importantly, that they learn how to fish that they, you know, if, if, if I built everything for you and said, here's what you should do in six months is out of date anyhow, because people also forget that the product that they're delivering in intellectual property is fundamentally different six months later. You might be delivering a huge amount of value in a few months. And so you need a process and frameworks to continually be revisiting value as things calm off that roadmap and that value delivery changes. And that, that's a new skill set and a new function in most software companies, publicly traded, privately held. Many companies are you know, relatively new to that game. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of the things that crossed my mind was, especially because you guys have been in the industry for almost 40, 40 years, which is for software, that's, you know, that's essentially midlife 
for the entire industry, right? <laughs> or almost the entire industry's um, lifespan uh, to date. Um, and and how you know and how lots of the foundational formats for pricing were set up in the eighties. If you think about how how Microsoft uh, developed the um, the MSOS deal with, with IBM, right, with the licensing model of the operating system and how that, that was kind of a novelty in the industry back then, which eventually ended up creating an entire industry. And now, of course, operating systems are not being sold anymore. They're kind of given away because what you really want to sell is, you know, the apps, the cloud, whatever it is. So the business model has also shifted a little bit. But yeah, I mean, what aspects um, in terms of this pricing strategy that you develop with your client? What what is actually the, you know, the phases you work with? Let's say maybe competitor analysis in in the, in in the first phase, and then you do workshops with the client, or how how what, you have like you know the standardized model that you run to capture. And 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 teach the client how to how to fish itself because that's yeah the process yeah. has been refined over you know many many hundreds of engagements and the work products get customized based on the problem at hand so you know if what, you're what launching would be, you know um, a typical intellectual property case here is just for people to understand what we're talking about well so our our firm is. And it's a it's a it's a good term that we use often, which is that if you shift the dialogue to a software company's capabilities, then we don't really care what form they come in. And in fact, many of our clients are services organizations that are bridging the gap over into product. And in fact, once they make that leap and complete that transition, their ability to execute is in many times superior because software companies that are born and bred as software companies struggle with services. And services organizations get really good at scoping. And that's really important, especially when we have uh, um, one-off deals and other things that need to be handled uh, creatively. So intellectual property just says we're monetizing a capability. We don't care if it comes in the form of a product or a service. And that's a really important insight because it allows you to understand how to create offerings that are a combination of products and services. And sometimes what makes an offer really great is not the feature on the roadmap, but rather the service that gets added in on top of the particular customer wants. And there's many different forms of services, but monetizing intellectual property carries with it a very unique set of frameworks and perspectives and sort of lenses that you would look at that are very, very different um, than I think the more static kind of products and very, very different than sort of B2C tactics that you would look at. And we, we look at the science and that is funded from the top schools, Harvard, MIT, Wharton, right here in uh, North Carolina, UNC, Keenan Flagler. And these are some of the top pricing experts in the world. And we use that intel, that information to say, well, how might we increase the accuracy of what we're doing? And if it has a basis or a finding or a, an insight in that community, then it has to pass muster on the executive team here, which is comprised all of former SaaS execs like myself and others who say, does it apply to the software business model? If it does, then we enrich that process or that framework and we might morph that perspective 
uh, in order to keep it current or to keep it uh, sort of leading edge. And that um, process that we're talking about is broken into roughly three chunks. So the first thing that you have to decide is what are you going to put in the quantity field? So I think it was like around 83, 84, we launched this idea of a value metric or of a licensing metric. And these are all synonyms for the quantity field in the contract. But what it really is, is the valuation that you want to go after. And now, now we get into, I remember it was, uh, I think it was Bill Arlett at MIT. I heard him speak and I think it was in Boston. And he said, you know, one of the problems in software is that we don't have a common lexicon and we don't have a common um, set of semantics to talk from. And his example was, you know, it's a pivot. No, I'm sorry. It's a change in business strategy. You know, let's talk about consumption. Okay. It's not, you know, I can sell you 10 users and you're consuming 10 users. And this idea of consumption is a net new term that's kind of cast over what's been being done for a really long time. We can look at terms like product-led growth and designing a product around having maybe a freemium layer, and then also having this idea of building monetization in from the start. Are, are, you, are you a fan of the model? Oh, I'm, a, I'm a fan it's of- a big, It's a big word right now. Yeah, no, right? I'm a fan of all of these different tactics provided they apply to the particular problem and not all companies will choose those strategies. So what I'm not a fan of is always having new terms to decouple so that we can have a great dialogue because <laughs> it is a little bit maddening, you know, like a having a self-service channel, you know, I've read articles around product-led growth that say, well, having a self-service channel, because if you don't have nothing, if you don't have a pure self-service channel, then, you know, maybe the sales team struggle with execution, but, you know, lots of great companies have great execution, have vibrant self-service channels, which is one of your go-to-market strategies. They have vibrant partner ecosystems. They have vibrant direct sales. They have vibrant enterprise teams and the list goes on and on. And so I don't think that there's a one size fits all, but I do think for the problem at hand for a particular company, any number of those strategies can be activated. And of course, that's what we're talking about, right? Is getting that dialogue up in a way that people can understand it, dialogue about it, pull out the component parts and decide, hey, I want to use this and I want to use that. And therefore, this is going to be part of my product design. And if you're launching a new product and you happen to have had long hair with me, like, like what I did, you know, maybe self-service isn't really the best because after three years, you're going to be really hungry, right? Maybe selling a $250,000 deal with a direct sales approach is enough to close the capital gap, which is what happened to us and attract investors and you're on your way. And so I, I think that monetization is also a moment in time. For mm -hmm. example, you might want to say, Hey, um, uh, I might want to say, Andre, uh, I'm in a capital raise. I want to lower my uh, amount of ownership that I want to change. And so therefore I'll give a, a, a percent uh, discount if you pay me up front. Well, in another scenario, I might not be in that position. I don't want to buy that money. So I'm not going to create a payment incentive for you to pay up front. I'm just going to say it's quarterly in advance or whatever my standard payment term and away I go. And so it's in those decisions that get linked to the company's uh, current stage of growth and current issues that make monetization so dynamic and therefore so complex, but it needs to be a formal discipline that it, you don't have to hire like a monetization guru day one. And in fact, they're incredibly hard to find, but you do need to be thinking about how to dip your toes in the water to begin having a dialogue around these topics, uh, which we can get into 
before we kind of put the, you know, the pizza under the door and get the code back, because there are real ramifications to those decisions. And anybody who's coded on a platform knows that if you make a monetization decision and you want to control some aspect that's called entitlement, then, you know, somebody's going to be coding for that. And God forbid you change your mind seven times, like somebody in engineering is going to be like, you know, this is, I'm changing it, I'm changing it back, I'm changing it again. I mean, this is like madness, right? So there's a lot of thrashing that can happen uh, inadvertently if you don't understand the sort of ripple impacts of some of the decisions that you make. And so back to the conversation of, of consumption, you know, consumption to me is uh, on one end of the spectrum, you know, the quantity is one. Andre, it's all you can eat. Go nuts on my software. Right. And by the way, it's a million dollars. So you can do the math of who's going to buy and who's not going to buy. And uh, uh, by the way, everybody who buys, you're going to be giving away value because they're going to be getting huge amounts of that for unlimited use. And everybody who doesn't buy can't afford it anyhow. So it's not, it's, yeah, it it's is like relatively a... easy to sell. It's impossible to like expand, right? It's like really hard. On the opposite end of that, I could charge you for every single time you make an API call. And then, you know, the buyer is going to be like, I've, I don't know how many a API calls. Like if you look at the AI space, you know, a lot of people early on were saying, I'll charge you based on the number of times that you run my model. Well, okay. So I want to hook up your facial detection algorithm to 73,000 cameras that run for a mix of 24 by seven and not always on 24 by seven. So how many model runs do I need? Which is dependent on how many faces are detected and across all like, there's no way. So, so you could imagine that that decision carries with it massive ramifications to your selling approach versus the other decision carries a different set of issues. And so licensing carries with it all of those ripple impacts that have to be thought through. And if you think about licensing less in terms of the things that we have to um, call them licensing metric, value metric, unit of measure, whatever, it really is, well, what range of quantities do you want your sales team to be up against? One to 10, one to a thousand, one to a million, like, and, and how do, you know that if the quantities get above a certain threshold, what questions people are gonna start asking you, right? Like Andre, I don't really know the answer to that question. I think I have to go talk to Brad. Can I call you back in a week? And you can just imagine sales you know, cycles going way out, right? Versus the other uh, side so, of it. So, 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 tell, so me, tell me a little bit more about how to take some of those best practices, anything that you see working really well in software that you've been able to embed into how you are price working with the clients or some of your existing clients or prospective ones? Well, I think that if you can get, and so this is dependent on the buyer audience, which by the way is shifting, right? Because people are always signing up new customers, but you know, in general, if you can get an aspect of the usage of the platform, which by the way, is sort of like master of the obvious. I mean, if you, if you want to charge based on some aspect of use, you're probably going to be much closely, much more closely aligned with value because that's kind of why you built the platform in the first place, because people have to use it to extract value. So, so consumption doesn't mean like go crazy. I think you can get kind of crazy. In fact, I would tell you people are kind of going consumption crazy. I mean, you can see it even in the B2C space. It's just at some point people are like, you know what? I don't, I don't need another one of those. And so if you can get a component of the usage of the platform into your pricing, then you can scale with that 
with that customer's growth. But what nobody ever wants to talk about for, let's say, pure play consumption is, well, what, what about COVID? I mean, if you charge me based on the number of transactions I did in the restaurant and it was purely consumption-based, well, you took a bath if you were that software company during COVID, right? So yeah. it's always a double-edged sword. So you might say, well, this is great as customers grow. That's fantastic. But what happens when the next market crash? And so you may not want to make everything variable. You might want to have a fixed component. And, and so those are the decisions that you would make. And that's connected to kind of your risk profile. So I think as a best practice, those decisions aren't pushed down into the organization and delegated. Those are executive level decisions, right? You're talking about business model risk at that point. And so licensing and the decisions that go with how you're going to gear your revenue model is really like the backbone that sticks right down through the software company's fiber uh, that allows them to, you know, it's going to get into everything. It's going to get into the code base. It's going to get into how you forecast your revenues. It's going to get into the way in which that whole business model has been designed. And it's going to carry with it a blueprint of risk, which is why you should never copy your competitor. Because when you copy your competitor, you don't realize that you're copying their blueprint yeah, of nuances risk. and specificities of each business. So yeah. what, what's what's your definition of pricing strategy if you were kind of giving a dictionary dictionary uh, style definition? How would you Well, so I I would I would first, you know, we're stuck back on those five P's of marketing, P for price, right? I would I would take out the P and put an M in there for monetization, which is something is a term that software pricing partners talked about and invented mm -hmm. many, many years ago. And it collectively talks about the three disciplines of licensing, which we just got into packaging, mm -hmm. how you put your offers together and then pricing, how you attach those price points onto those offers to come up with your monetization model, your monetization approach. And so to me, it is part strategic, which is the design, if you will, it's also part uh, the process of how you're going to keep it current. And then it's also deep in mechanics. I mean, how am I going to handle a customer who comes in on a consumption basis and it happens to be sold in a contract and it's in month three and they want more? Like there's tons of mechanics that go in making that strategy a reality. And so if you're the guy that has a firm that says, well, let me give you all the strategy and here's your PowerPoint slide, I think you do a real disservice because the customer who's buying the strategy has to figure out how to implement all that stuff. And that's where it all falls down. Right. So gluing that together is really important. And then, and I think this is the single most important thing that everybody misses. Uh, what's your philosophy? So, so we would tell you that those who are transparent, especially now after the crisis we've been through that day and age of me saying, well, Andre, that's a nice shirt. So uh, if you buy it today, I can give you a great discount, sort of that Oracle invented late nineties kind of thing. I would tell you that's dead and gone. Now it's like COBOL. There's still COBOL out there. There's just not a lot of people writing it. You know what I mean? And I can say that because I wrote COBOL early on. Um, and uh, so it's not going to go away because it's in the way in which we were organized yeah, and kind of onboarded, right? But over time, what you'll find is that if you talk about your philosophy in the terms of what we would put forward as market fairness, which means Andre, if two people come in and spend the same amount of money with us, they earn, earn the same discount. You know, we don't believe in 
giving away discounts. They're earned and they're earned through volume because in software company speak, you want more, you want them to be at scale. You want them to come in for their full use case. You want them to get to value very quickly. So them coming all in is good for you and it's good for them because they'll get the value that much faster. And so designing a strategy around making that happen is really super important for the growth and the health of the company, but also for the um, client or the customer's return. But market fairness puts a really nice wall that salespeople can lean against where I say, you know, and it's, it's really hard to do by the way, but I can say, Andre, look, I understand that you just need to feel good to get like an extra percent discount. But if I do that, I have to go back to 7,000 customers and give them that discount. And I, I'm not going to do that. I can't walk in the room to Jeff, who I just talked to yesterday, who paid that price at, let's say a half a million spend and earned a 10% discount. And you're at a half a million spend. You, you're going to earn the same yeah, discount. Some, some businesses yeah. are doing that all the time, right? If you are in the conference business or a ticket sale, sales business, you know, discounts all the way through. So what kind of strategies are you see working best for firms to attract new clients to, to build out the pipeline for, uh, for software, really? Um, is it not discount-driven? Is it no, it's, it's everything should... Well, I'm not saying discounts are bad. I'm saying everything should be structured. Mm -hmm. um, programmed, if you will, so it could be measured and monitored. And, um, you know, going back to the idea of maybe the piece that, or, or, or the piece that you want to eliminate is the discretionary portion, right? Because right. as soon as you put that data point out there with a buyer, that buyer talks and, the, and today's 10% discount that was discretionary to close the deal becomes tomorrow's 11 and 12. And pretty soon people start buying at the end of the quarter and at the end of the year and sales cycles sort of elongate. And that so is- How are you avoiding the, the, the discretionarity of the, the discount? Is it- Discounts are earned based on volume and you don't, there's a programmatic way to earn discounts. So you might um, at a certain spend level, earn a certain discount and it's programmed. You don't get any extra. If you want extra, I'll tell you how much more you have to spend, right? Well, many of our clients do this today and deal velocity skyrocket because the ecosystem learns that there's not a deal to be had. Sales cycles come in, the thing becomes programmed and that flywheel starts cranking very quickly. Um, the other thing is if I want, if you want an extra 5% discount, I might, if I, if I had this in my strategy, I might say, well, you know, we do have a pay in advance discount of five, of 4%, which you can earn, but you have to pay in advance. In other words, you have to do something to earn the menu. And if I menu that out and structure that out with a good design, a good strategy and good mechanics, the sales force turns more into the maitre d' and less of the, the dancing on the stage with the, Hey, it's, you know, a good time to buy software at the end of the month. And so when you kind of get that programmed, another wonderful thing happens. And that wonderful thing that happens is everything that's programmed can be measured and monitored. And in fact, our software does that measure, measures, monitors, and optimizes pricing. But you can't do any of that if there's a discretionary component, because if there's a discretionary component, there's always a story as to why that had to happen. And there's no structure or ability to ascertain if that was what truly moved the deal or not because the right. salesperson so says how, well. so how do you see so that's i guess hard-coded programmatic rules but how do you see things like machine learning getting into uh software pricing strategy and and price setting for b2b 
um, for intellectual properties. Is it going to change the, the landscape? Is it already changing the landscape? Uh, I don't think so because, you know, machine learning. So some of our clients do not just machine learning, but they train the models, you know, models have to be trained and models that are trained need a lot of data, like a lot of data. And so the first problem you have is getting that data. These are privately held companies or publicly held software companies or PE backed. I and mean, they may, they're not going to like let you into their billing system unless you're really locked in on all kinds of contract terms. Um, but to train those models, you're going to need a lot of data and the spread of variability of both the product and the customer ecosystems and the software companies are very broad. So while you might be able to do that in B2C, you know, Amazon and others, I'm sure have optimization routines, you're really going to struggle with the amount of data that you need to train and tune that model. And then in AI speak, you have the problem called drift and drift says, if I'm doing facial detection for a camera, like next year, there's a new camera with new fidelity and it has to, it's going to, the AI model is not going to be as accurate as the model that was trained on last year's camera. Well, think about how fast software companies change. That drift component is going to be unbelievably complicated to figure out how to solve. So, you know, we've done a lot of research in that place. We have very deep expertise in AI and machine learning, but I think we're a long way off if somebody was telling me I'm going to run ML on your B2B pricing and outcomes of magic answer, I'd be, I'd be asking a lot of questions. Right. And it's still humans at the end of the day that are purchasing, I guess you could do, yeah. you could, you could say that maybe, you know, some years, uh, a big part of the transactions or a bigger part of the transactions are not going to be, humans behind you know the the purchasing um section right it's it's automated somehow and you know robots buy to robots and robots sell to robots to a certain to a certain point so um maybe that will have um any any foreseeable impact i don't know if if you are looking into this somehow um but you do see a lot of that in high volume transactions like uh, stock markets and, and so on right um, maybe it's still going to take some 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 years to get into uh, other industries um, well and guess, even in yeah. machine learning and training you still haven't been able to not you can't yet knock out the human component entirely so if I'm doing self-driving cars I mean the fidelity of the polygon mapping and all the points around the object in the scene, like some, somebody needs to be like in there. Cause if it's a little bit off and the quality is done, like somebody's going to get in an accident. So there is a, there is a use, a set of use cases there that really drive some manner of human involvement. And I do believe will drive manners of human involvement for, you know, years to come. I, I don't, I, I can't say it's going to be decades to come, but I, I do think that, those problems are a bit further off to fully solve, but I'm sure and confident somebody's working on it right now and will disagree with me. But I think in practical context, you know, uh, I you haven't yet seen automated, so. yeah, machine learning algorithms for some of the complicated use cases in uh, in that machine learning space. So, how do you see the pandemic impacting customer sales objections? And you know, it's been still, I guess, you started the conversation. By, by talking about it and it's kind of 
you know, it's in, in many ways, it's still there. So how is this impacting the, the whole um, customer sales objections and, and, and yeah. And is it fundamentally changing the business or it's, it's one, you know, it's not really foundational in terms of uh, how it's going to perform in the next years. Well, if you had, you know, I think we used the example earlier, software for restaurants or software for some of the categories yeah. that really took a hit, then that was pretty, uh, pretty fundamental and pretty brutally painful. If, um, if you um, looked at the impacts as, as our customers would describe them, I, I think they're much more psychological than maybe business model. And I don't mean that business models haven't transformed because they have, and many yeah. companies adapted very creatively to that. So um, in the psychological standpoint, I think that you know people are, when they're buying, asking a lot more questions, paying a lot more attention to how the price was calculated, understanding what happens if these scenarios happen, or if I need to downsize. Like they're just much more caution, thought, thoughtful caution, I think, on the buying front. And I think the more that software companies, especially in services organization, can put the method behind, you know, why did this get calculated the way it is? And if I take this component out and uh, I put this component back in, like it really should add up to the same price, which is uh, sort of one of those procurement traps. You know, if you're discretionary discounting, I'll ask you to unbundle your offer. And of course, you'll give me a discretionary discount. Then I sort of put it back together and have you put the different configurations back in it. And if it doesn't add up, it's a really bad day for the salesperson. So I think people are just kind of, frankly, a little sick of that. And they just are seeking a much more clear picture of, you know, what does this look like for today? What does it look like when I sort of am fully invested or fully rolled out? And if I need to pilot it much smaller, what does that look like? And, you know, our customers can answer that question like on the first call and you need to be able to do that. And I think the way in which many companies are organized is really at odds with what has happened in, in part from that psychological piece in COVID, which is it's very much geared around, well, I'll get back to you. Let me go put a quote together. You know, by the time I get all these answers done, it'll be a month, uh, not to mention the lag and the difficulty of getting somebody back on the phone. And of course, I am focusing on direct sales and enterprise, which many companies use, but people want to understand the rationale behind the price. And back from what we talked about before, I think brands especially, um, need to get loud about their philosophy of pricing. You know, how are you going to treat your customers fairly and what sort of processes have you put in place to ensure that that happens? And if you've ever bought software, which I think all of us have, you know, the, the worst fear is that, you know, you're sitting on that plane ride out to uh, California, which I don't have to do so much anymore. I'm in the East coast. And, you know, if I'm sitting in first class, I'm not going to ask you, Andre, what you paid for your ticket. But if you and I both installed SAP or Salesforce, we're going to talk about what we bought, services, product, and what we paid. And if the answer is we bought something relatively similar and we compare our net price paid and it's very different, like somebody's going to be really pissed off about that. And I've seen people just go to the ends of the earth when that happens to just rip out the software, even though it makes all the sense in the world for them having paid more to stay on the software and not go through the operational hiccup. But now we've 
Now we've got somebody very angry for being taken advantage of. And I think, you know, people are, you know, more and more getting sick of that. And you can see it. So how do you, you minimize, how do you minimize risk every stage of this pricing process? And I think there's the story that I believe you can reference on, on someone, uh, a client of yours who was, you know, looking at their competitors and wanted to lower the price significant, um, you know, in this, by a significant margin. Yeah. Um, can you can you go through that story? Yeah. So one of the things that we do is we have very sophisticated technology that models the impact, and that's done at a at a line item level. And when people are messing around with sort of you know, the licensing, the unit of measure, or they're, licensing, they're changing around the packaging, or they're changing around the price point, often that homework assignment to do that is very difficult. Their data is not structured in the right way. It might be buried in Salesforce, and it might be bookings data or invoice data. It's partial truths in multiple systems. So just getting that data together is very difficult. But once they do that, then you really have to say, well, if I'm gonna change these things, I need to go back and take a look at what everybody bought and at what volume and, and how they configured all those deals. And I need to be able to like say, if I put this new strategy out there, here's the revenue production for the FP&A team to kind of slice and dice. And that's kind of what our technology does along with our services. And that homework assignment is very rarely done, very rarely. And the story that we were talking about earlier was uh, this was not a customer, it was a prospect. and. Uh, they looked at the competitive set. So this is a bit of the copying the, you know, the blind leading the blind, if you will. And they looked at the competitive set and everybody else's, you know, offering that they felt was similar was like twice as expensive as, uh, I'm sorry, uh, twice as cheap as theirs. So they felt that they were twice as expensive. And uh, this particular gentleman's answer was, well, I'm going to cut the price in half. And my comment was, well, have you modeled the revenue production? Because if you cut the price in half, you're going to need a lot more customers and you really want to make sure you don't get hurt. And the answer was, well, I'm just assuming that, you know, the demand will more than make up for that. To which I asked, you know, well, what if it doesn't? And then the question you want to ask yourself is what happens to that person's career when they make an assumption like that and you do a rollout and you cut the price in half and you just tanked a few million in revenues? Well, you know, it's just going to be a really bad day and not so great of a career choice. And I think that the homework assignment is often not being done because it is so complicated. I mean, there's really thorny problems to solve, to understand, well, this customer, you know, is a three month contract, this one, and, and God forbid you are modeling or trying to come at figuring out a consumption component because people don't concern, people don't consume a term contract, right? They just consume sometimes outside of that term contract. And you're, you really have to be creative and accurate for how you model usage data and invoice transaction data because they're very different. And uh, the other thing that uh, always kind of blows my mind is, you know, people love aggregating, right? We love dashboards and KPIs, but what happens when you aggregate? You lose all context. And I remember this was a, actually a company up in Boston and uh, they had just uh, closed. It was three days after they rolled out our recommendations. They closed the largest deal in the company's history. And then in the second month, the KPIs started going down and they were like, oh my God, the pricing strategy is not working. So you get into the data, you look and you realize that there's two sales reps that are accounting for 90% of the drop. And so we called up the CEO and the CEO said, oh, thank God. And I said, well, why are you saying thank God? He said, well, we let them go last month. And so, but when you aggregate, you tell yourself a different story and you just have to know that when you aggregate these 
numbers, you lose all the context. And that's the problem because monetization is about all the context, all the nuances, all the corner cases, all the thorny little configurations. And this client's using it a little bit more uniquely. And is that sort of a pattern that's emerging or is that just a one-off? Like all of that nuance is so important, but it gets lost. And the thing that um, is really problematic is people love averages, but you can't take an average unless the data set is normally distributed and usage data and many data sets are not, not normally distributed. So all these people that are taking these averages and running the daily blocking and tackling and messing around with the number one BI tool on the planet in Excel are horribly misleading themselves. Don't, please don't take an average of your, your modeled consumption data because it's wrong. You know, these are like left leaning, right? So, so the, yeah. the nuances are so very important because when you make a mistake, it's like the, I don't remember. It's like, isn't there like 17 steps to wreck a plane and you kind of have to make all these errors in a row to like get that thing to hit the ground and error rates and monetization. It's never, oops, I should have put that feature over here. It's 17 little things that you assumed to be true that weren't. And the error rates sort of like add on top of each other and get exponential. And then you have a really off recommendation. And so yeah, it's uh, system system dynamics, right? So yeah, complexity complex just system. rises complexity. very fast. Yeah, and I, I think you know to to a certain extent product managers, product people, they have at heart productization is also about standardization to a certain extent. So um there is this two opposing forces of personalizing or taking all those nuances to create context and give, you know, structured pricing and at on on the other hand you have this philosophy of you know making pricing and bundling and packaging kind of grouping so you don't lose you don't have too much management overhead so how do you how do you you know balance this two sides of the equation on on one hand you you don't want to lose too much time or invest too much in having hyper personalization and on the other hand, you also need to have all that context that you're speaking about to provide the right price for the right value for the right customer, if, if I'm making myself. No, clear. I mean, those two things really are at odds. So, so I think that you, most companies will maybe listen to this and you'll sort of stand at a fork road. And on one fork of the road, you would say, that I want to, and by the way, on this fork, you'll choose a whole different methodology and a whole different set of tools to support this, but I want to get the most out of every sales transaction, right? And I don't really care that Andre is going to talk to Chris and Chris is going to be upset that he got ripped off with, a, with less of a discretionary discount than Andre got. And you'll gear a lot of stuff around that idea because what you're trying to do, and that's more B2C-like is I'm trying to maximize that point in time on that transaction. Now, our philosophy is the other fork of the road. Monetization is a portfolio play. You're trying to tune and optimize the portfolio of customers. And monetization's job, which is in direct conflict of product's goal, which is becoming more complicated, is to keep things simple. And I think the number one thing that the product team can do is pay attention to the intersection of pricing and selling. Because if in what is created that now I have to have extra costs uh, for document storage. And so, hey, we're going to charge for that. 
Hey, I've mm -hmm. got extra CPU usage because now we're consumption. So we're going to charge for that. Hey, I've got this, I've got that. I, yeah. I think that if product could play that out of what it might be like to sell, you know, they might actually be bald. Like it's a really terrible thing to walk somebody through all of those variables and it gums up the transaction. It's really hard to sell. And so monetization is the game of making those trade-offs and doing the mathematical modeling and the sort of science of it to know that, okay, well, if I absorb this component for the extra document storage, or I absorb this component for the extra CPU, how do I make sure I don't get hurt? And how do I make sure that I equip the sales team with that really easy dialogue? And it's in that place that if you really sit down and think and reflect, and we sort of wired the product management team around that, you start to have these aha moments like, oh, I, I, I understand what's happening here. Oh, I see where, how I prioritize the roadmap is also driven by monetization. Without monetization, I don't, you know, what would be better to release module one and then module two or release module two and then module one? Well, what if you knew that releasing them in the backwards order, module two and module one would generate a million and a half revenue like three months early? I mean, you know, they're going to be like parading you around on the software company, you know, like party, right? And, and, that, and those, but that's completely missing, right? So monetization also gives you that, but it also gives you this idea of how might that dialogue play out? And the more that you have that dialogue, the more you'll be curious and go talk to somebody in sales. And, and once you start listening on that and, and understanding what, you know, most buyers don't want to game the system. They just want to get what they need, which is usually a subset of what you're, what you're offering, right? <laughs> they just want to get what they need and they don't want to pay for what they don't need. And, they, and then of course they don't want to be taken advantage of. And, and as complexity grows, if you don't have monetization, eventually that dialogue is really maddening. And you can see that in big software companies. I remember it was actually just a yeah. few years ago. You can see this, this concept of like, it's called, we call it hyper gearing. Hey, mm -hmm. if you, uh, if you upgrade, you can have five of these, six of those, seven of these. And the, you know, it's like feature level gating. I mean, yeah. if you're a buyer, ugh, good luck. It's tough. So one of the things you said is like you talk about the chief monetization officer. Shouldn't the chief product officer, the CPO, or be that chief monetization officer? Are you? It can be in some organizations, but but here's the problem. But the problem is that um, the chief monetization monetization officer is part product, right? But it's also chief marketing officer because monetization isn't about features. It's about the value that is being communicated along those capabilities. It's also part operations because you need a completely different set of license entitlement systems, billing and other things. So you don't, you really do need to have some ability to have deep understandings in that. It's, uh, it's also part CEO because of the implications of risk that we talked about earlier. And often what happens is the organization doesn't have a clear owner to pricing. And so what happens is it kind of gets lopped on top. And if you're a CPO in today and they're like, Hey, by the way, Andre, you're also going to get pricing. Like you don't have the bandwidth for that. So you're not going to get into all those other areas. And so in a sense at certain companies, not all a chief monetization officer makes a lot of sense because you're offloading that sort of mental bandwidth and creating a hub that sits right at the center of the revenue model so that everything becomes central to designing that business model and, the, and its implications and its risk and all of the things that we talked about today. So 
in some organizations, they absolutely um, have pricing under a chief product officer. Sometimes it's under marketing. Uh, should never be under sales, ever, 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 <laughs> ever, ever. But um, yeah, I mean, it, I think the the important concept is that companies get their feet wet and start to learn these frameworks and processes so that it is part of the dialogue. And that may not need, need to be that you hire somebody full-time, but in many organizations, you, you're going to hire somebody full-time. And where I would focus that on is in our discipline, licensing, packaging, pricing, I wouldn't be hiring somebody that's an expert in licensing because you don't launch products every day. I wouldn't be hiring somebody that is an expert in pricing because there's tools and a lot of science behind modeling and optimizing that. But in packaging, that sits you right in the center. That role is very dynamic. I need to talk to all those folks in sales, ops, marketing. I need to glue all that together. That person that you're hiring probably already exists in the organization or at least in part exists. And that's a much easier thing to staff for rather than trying to hire the next jack of all trades, you know, we have teams of people that specialize in those three disciplines. It's very hard to find one person that does all three. And kind of like we talked earlier in architecture, part of the decision of how you gear the process is around the availability of the staff. And I would say, good luck finding or hiring somebody like a pricing expert on your team. They're just really hard to find right now. It's a, it's a, it's a budding profession that maybe starts much more mechanical in nature and, and, uh, isn't like comprehensive quite yet. And so I think getting really good by offloading those two disciplines to the experts and then really learning, right? So stay away from black box approaches, find a methodology and a set of frameworks that you, that resonate with you, that your team tries on during whatever the sales process is and says, Hey, this is changing the way I think. And I like this and don't fall into the trap of using today's frameworks because today's frameworks don't work for monetization. You need monetization specific frameworks, right? Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Um, really pleasure to have you with us. I uh, very and much enjoyed it. Thank you so much. And also thank you for joining the, the productized podcast. If you enjoyed, you can stay and you can give us a review on Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. Please share your episode with friends and colleagues. You um, also will have some show notes and more episodes at productize.medium.com. You can join our community there, and we'll be sharing the links in the, in the, in the chat. Thank you so much, everyone, and have a great day.